Our reading this morning comes from Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16, and can be found in the insert in your bulletin. Hear the word of the Lord. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. <clears throat> the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the many ways you have shown us your care and provision. And so it is out of what you have first given to us, what has come to us through your hand, that we return to you these tithes, these gifts, and these offerings. And we pray that you would use them in order that they would be a blessing to the nations, in order that your kingdom would be revealed here and throughout the world, in order that the kingdom of darkness would be pushed back, in order that the wonderful good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, would be proclaimed to all the nations. And Father, even as we long for the good news to go out into all the nations, we pray this morning, as we have opportunity to sit beneath your word, we pray that the gospel would be proclaimed to us, that it would be proclaimed to those of us who are in Christ, to those of us who right now are outside of Christ. Father, we pray that we would be made to hear the voice of the Lord Jesus this morning, the one who came and spoke and through the power of his voice made the blind to see and the deaf to hear, the lame to walk, the one who through the power of his voice spoke into the tomb itself, and by the power of his voice, raise the dead to life. Father, we pray that we would hear his voice this morning, that you would come, 
and that you would wake us from our slumber, that you would even wake us from death itself and give us life in Jesus, that you would give us eyes, that you would open our eyes to see Jesus, that you would open our ears to hear. Father, our prayer this morning is that you would confront us with the beauty and the glory and the love and the righteousness of Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. The children are dismissed at this time uh, to Children's Church, back of the sanctuary. Right now we're in the middle of a uh, a little 10-part series on relationships. Um, And in the interest of full disclosure, my goal for this Sunday was to just talk about the topic of communication and how we speak to and with one another. And so specifically, I wanted to address verse 15 of this passage we read earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul writes and tells us to be speaking the truth and love to one another. And and that's still where we're headed this morning. But here's the thing. As I I was looking at that verse, I I started backing up verse by verse, um, until eventually wound up all the way in verse 1 of chapter 4. And here's why. There's <clears throat> maybe not until you're in this role of having to talk about talking. Um, there's something awkward about talking about talking. And uh, it starts to feel kind of sterile and clinical and a little utilitarian um, when you do it. But that's not how Paul talks about talking, right? He doesn't say, oh, and now some bullet points on communication, um, This is a letter to his friends, to the church at Ephesus. And what he says about how we speak with one another comes in the larger context of, which is heavily relational, right? And and of course, that's the context for all of our communication, too. It's hashed out in the context of real, tangible relationships. And see, relationships, this is what we've been seeing all along. Relationships are at the very core of our humanity, the author, Kent Hughes, uh, he wrote and told this story about a man he had counseled. And this is just a brief excerpt from that story. But he writes, I once counseled a lonely man who was not a Christian. He had no family that care, cared. He belonged to no church. In describing his loneliness, he said that he had his hair cut once a week just to have someone touch him with no misunderstanding. Right. Craving human contact, you know, touch without misunderstanding, right? Connection without fear of reprisal, Um, nearness without the fear of deep rejection. In infant orphanages, um, some of you know that a real danger is posed to the mortality and development of infant children. One author wrote, but how could simply being in an orphanage, kill a baby? The author answered his own question later. He said, basically, they die from lack of love. When an infant falls below the threshold of physical, of physical affection needed to stimulate the production of growth hormone and the immune system, his body starts shutting down. See, research itself shows a significant connection between simple physiological contact 
and the overall health and development of infant children. And I bring up these two very sad stories or examples at the beginning to make a very simple point. Stories like these point the finger emphatically at the, at the fact that we were made and designed by God for relationships, right? It, God designed us for connection. Instinctively, we crave, even physiologically, we hunger for nearness with others. It is etched into our souls, into our DNA. This is what he made us to be. And, and so this is one of the ways we mirror and reflect the image of a relational, communal, triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And you, th- you think about this. If this is how God designed you and me, then this means that we can only start, only by moving towards one another, can we learn, find out, and understand who we really are. Because that's what he made us to be. In Ephesians 4, this is, Paul, this is Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 4. We cannot be who we were created to be until we have moved towards one another to live in unity with one another. This is what God made us to be. And by the end, I want us to see that the way we communicate with one another, the way we speak to and with one another, it is absolutely essential to our moving towards one another in unity. So here's where we're headed this morning. Three points. Paul is telling us in this passage to live out our identity. And he is telling us to serve one another. And finally, he is telling us to speak the truth in love to one another, which is the key to how to do all the above. All right. First, living out your identity. Here's the deal. If you claim to be a Christian this morning and you are proud and arrogant, and you think to yourself how much better you are than those people, whoever those people are for you. Or if you're a Christian and you are harsh with others, and you create friction in your relationships, or if you see yourself as a blunt, cold, hard, reckless dealer of the truth with others, or if you claim to be a Christian and you're impatient with the failings and the brokenness of others around you, why can't you just get it together like me? In other words, if you aren't, verse 2 of this passage, humble, gentle, patient, and bearing with one another in love, and you claim to be a Christian, I want you to realize something very important in this point. You're doing something far more than just breeding disunity among God's people. You're actually betraying yourself and deepening your own fractures and rupturing and tearing at your own identity. See, Paul wrote in verse 1, Therefore walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In this entire section, Paul is saying, Live out your identity. Let your practice match or line up with or, um, or be worthy of the reality of who you really are. See, in real time, in concrete practice, Paul is saying, live out your identity. You're rupturing not just the community of God's people, but your very self when your identity and your practice don't match. And that's true whether you feel like it or not right now. 
The word therefore in, Paul, in verse 1, you know, this, this is Paul's way of saying the byproduct of everything I just said to you in this letter is that you would live in practical unity with one another. <clears throat> so what has Paul been saying for three chapters to the Ephesians? Well, you really have to read it for yourself because um, we can't go through it all. Uh, but let me give you the gist. He's been saying something like this. You were God's lost treasure that he gave up everything to recover. He's saying you were cut off from hope. Right? You were sealed off from the Visio day. You were sealed off from the face of God, which you are made to live and have life in front of his face. But your sin kept you from his face. This is what he's been saying. So here's what God did. He sent his son to bring you back to life, to bring you near to him, right? He reconciled you. He made peace. He ended the hostility. He took you, a stranger, and made you a son or daughter. And now his face shines upon you with undiminishable delight. That's what he's, something of what he's been saying for the first three chapters. C.S. Lewis brought up a great question in his book, Mere Christianity, which was basically this. Did Jesus come to make us nice or to make us new? And this is what he wrote. For mere improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people, even here and now and will in the end improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. Listen, he writes, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. So read chapters 1 through 3 and see if I'm right. Being a Christian means you have been brought from death to life and made sons and daughters of the king of the kings. Right In verses 4 through 6, Paul is saying that what unites and binds us together is, is that we share in one spirit. One Lord, one God, and one Father. Christians are made new and they have the life of the triune, relational, communal, loving God in them. I mean, so many throughout history, I I don't even know who originally came up with the quote, but I'm going to credit John Wesley this morning. I don't think it was him. But he defined Christianity like this. He said, what is Christianity? He said, Christianity is the life of God in the soul of man. Jesus did not come to make us polite and emotionally well-balanced, and well-mannered, right, and nice, he came to make us new. Let your identity shape your practice, Paul is saying. One with God and alive in him. Be one with one another, right? Live in unity with one another. I made a deal with myself um, that I would use only one Lord of the Rings illustration per year. So I, I'm burning this one pretty quickly, so I hope it's worth it. Um, this is actually from the movies, though, so I might cheat later on. Um, we'll see. It's not the books. But anyway, in the last movie, everyone was getting ready for the last great battle, right? And the character Aragorn, he was in his tent. And what you need to understand about Aragorn is that he was born of royal blood, Right. He was the rightful heir to the throne. It, but he had been living as a ranger, you might remember, a wanderer, this drifter. He'd been living like this for years. And while Aragorn was in his tent, 
and he was preparing for this great, huge battle to come, the elf Elrond showed up, right? And Elrond had with him a sword. And the sword was the sword that had belonged to Aragorn's father and now belonged to him as the rightful king. And so in this moving scene, if, if you saw the movies, Elrond passed the sword to Aragorn, and, and this is what he said when he gave him the sword. He said, put aside the ranger. Become who you were born to be. I love that saying. But I think this is kind of what Paul is telling us here. Right? He, Elrond passed that sword to Aragorn to say, this is who you really are. Right? You've been living at odds with your identity. Put away the ranger. He could have said this. And live in a manner worthy of your calling. Right? Our job is to discover who we were made and remade in Jesus to be and to live out that identity. That's the only real place of freedom, the only real place of maturity and growth for us. You see, Paul isn't urging us in this section to create unity with one another, or else he would have said that. Instead, he says in verse 3, maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. He's saying by virtue of who you by virtue of who you already are in Jesus. This is already a reality for you. He's saying now work and struggle and strive to live out of that identity. See, he's saying die to your self-centeredness. To your agendas. The way you think things ought to be done for everyone else. Die to that stuff. Those things that are keeping you from unity. Die to your bitterness and forgive. Die to your defensive pride and live in humility with one another. Move towards one another. Know one another well and be patient, humble, gentle, and bear with one another in love. Verse 2. Become who you were born to be in Jesus. Now, Now, second, let's move on to see... And Paul tells us that we're to move towards unity and therefore maturity by serving one another with our differing gifts. Unity in the church is not realized through sameness, but through our diversity. It's great that you get along with people who are just like you. Right, have the same tastes and concerns and talents and likes and dislikes as you. But the gospel enables and envisions something much larger for you, more glorious, more world-confounding for you and me. Unity through diversity, which is realized when we serve one another with the gifts that God has given us. I wish we had time to look in detail, really, at all these verses, but verses 7 through 10 in particular here, But here's Paul's main point in these verses. When Jesus accomplished his work of defeating sin and death, he ascended. And in his marvelous and wonderful generosity, he poured out gifts to his people. He poured out gifts upon us through his spirit. Verse 7 uh, Grace was given to each each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Jesus has uniquely and generously gifted each one of us. 
And why has Jesus uniquely gifted us, you and me, with differing gifts? Like this sampling in verse 11. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. I know these are largely gifts related to vocational kind of ministry. A larger sampling you can find in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. But the main point in all these passages is the same. Here it is. Paul's main point is to explain the purpose behind our unique and differing gifts. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Unity is maintained as we serve one another with our diverse gifts. And I don't know what your, your gifts might be, um, your specific gifts. It, and by the way, the way you learn what your specific gifts are is to pay attention to the things that concern you, to the needs that you see, right? And then instead of complaining about those concerns, jumping in and getting involved and seeing what you can do and finding out if you have a gift to meet those concerns and those needs. You see, most of the time, you learn your gifts through trial and error, but you have to jump in. Okay, let's come back to the bigger point Paul's making. The bigger point is that Jesus hasn't gifted you like he's gifted me. And that means... You need me. But it also means, he's also saying that, um, that he hasn't gifted me like he's gifted you. Did I already say that? We're going both ways. But I need you, we need each other. Okay? It's confusing. Um, give me a break. I've been up since early this morning. Um, you, you can't become, you cannot become who you are meant to be without me exercising my gifts and serving you with them. And I cannot become who I was meant to be in Jesus without you using your gifts and serving me. We are incomplete. We are incomplete without one another. God made us to be interdependent upon one another. If you go home this afternoon and you read through the New Testament letters to the churches, not see, not just Ephesians, but like to the Corinthian church and to uh, the church at Philippi and Thessalonica and the Colossian church. I'll tell you what you'll find. Not the slightest hint that Christianity or membership in the church can be lived from the sidelines. I hope you know what I mean. The idea that we could somehow be appropriately living the Christian life well as spectators is completely foreign and unknown in the Bible. Unity in the church isn't achieved through sameness, but through the diversity of our gifts in action, serving not ourselves but one another. We can't be who we were made to be without actively serving one another. C.S. Lewis again, and then we're done with C.S. Lewis for this morning. He had this close group of friends, many of you know this illustration, that would regularly get together. And in that small little community of friends, the death death of their friend Charles led Lewis to reflect on how they needed each other. And this is what he wrote. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. Far from having more of Ronald, Ronald, having him to myself... Now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. To to know each other 
and themselves, they needed each other. It wasn't just that Charles was gone, but without Charles, he had less of Ronald, right? It's a little... A lot of Tolkien in here this morning, too. Um, I really don't want to... um, I don't want to shame anyone here this morning. I want to encourage you. Your personality, it it might not be extroverted, right? Or or bold or comfortable leading large numbers of people. It it seems like in those arenas, those are the main ones we say, like, or we feel guilty about, like, oh, I would be a better Christian if I could do something like that. Let me ask you something. What about Thaddeus? (laughs) And I'm serious about this. Do you know who Thaddeus is? I've never heard a sermon about Thaddeus. He was one of the 12 disciples. When Jesus walked this earth, he chose 12 men, just 12 men out of all humanity that he would be closest to. And Thaddeus was one of those men. But I've heard sermons about Paul and Peter and James and John. Not about Thaddeus. And I bet you haven't heard too many sermons about him either. Um, But apparently, apparently Jesus thought Thaddeus was really important and had some gifts upon which he would build a foundation for his church throughout the ages. And I guess it might have been more, his gifts might have been more in the background than Paul and Peter. I'm saying this to encourage you, whatever gifts Jesus has given you, Please use them because I need you. We need you. We need one another. And so we have to throw in together in this and serve one another, be sacrificial and help each other become who we were meant to be. Paul says in verse 14, he says this, so that we may no longer be children or infants tossed to and fro by the waves and so on. When he talks, uh, when Paul talks about our immaturity as infants tossed around, he refers to us in the plural, infants, many different people, right? But in verse 13, when he talks about us maturing and serving one another with our gifts, he talks about our becoming a single, whole, undivided person to mature manhood, as our translation puts it which he puts in the singular. We come together and we become one. See, immature infants who are not wise, they can be spotted by the amount of time they spend thinking about what everyone else should be doing. I become mature when I worry less about what others are doing and spend more time thinking about how I should be serving others. Immaturity is characterized by being easily angered and offended, impulsivity and being easily deceived, and no real follow-through in life. Maturity is characterized by growing in wisdom, patience, humility, and an ability to see things through. And we only get that as we come together. So where are you? I actually want you to have a conversation over lunch today. That's your assignment, your homework assignment For you to look other people in the eye and say, I need you to help me figure out what my gifts are. What should I be doing this week? How can I use those gifts to serve someone this coming week? We need one another. We've got to start fleshing this stuff out together. Okay, lastly, all the way back to where we began. What is the key to doing all of this? What's the key to practically living out our identity, and using our gifts in such a way that promotes peace and unity among us. 
I think Paul is giving us the key in verse 15 when he writes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together by every joint, with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What's the key to making each diverse part work properly? It's speaking the truth and love to one another. Is what Paul is telling us. We're able to grow up and live out our identity and serve one another in a culture where the truth is spoken in love. What do we mean when we talk about speaking the truth? Truth is, it's all about reality, right? An honest, transparent view of reality. We're t- when we're talking about truth, we're talking about s- speech that doesn't misrepresent or hide reality. Speech that gives full disclosure, right? an open view of itself and reveals reality. When someone lies to you, it's, they're distorting or slanting or covering up the way things really are. To speak the truth is to reveal the things that, that are really there. Paul is saying that the key to having a community that practically lives out its identity and learns its gifts and uses its gifts to promote unity in this community is one that deals in reality, in the truth. Think about this. You cannot know yourself in isolation. Why is the first year of marriage so difficult for so many people? It's because before you got married, you only thought you knew yourself. Right? Only when you start living in real, close, transparent, under like 24-hour observation, do you start to get to know the real you. And at first, in that first year of marriage, you're usually surprised by it. Um, I can't believe she's ticked off about this or that. I can't believe he's disappointed in this or that. And so at first, you're really, really defensive about all these things. And it leads to some pretty awesome and epic battles and arguments, right? Um, but then if you're humble enough to recognize it, um, what has actually been true about you for your entire life is only now beginning to become clear to you. Um, and it's this unavoidable fact. You can only truly know yourself through the eyes and ears of someone else. You can only know yourself from the perspective of someone outside of you. That's why that first year of marriage is so difficult because you thought you were marrying another human being and you were marrying a mirror. And a mirror that was very, very clear (laughs) and, and gladly revealed all of your flaws, whether you asked for it or not, right? This means if you think you're going to grow and become mature on the sidelines as a spectator, you're fooling yourself. You're moving further and further away from maturity. It's only an active, up-close, personal involvement with others that you can come to know the truth, the reality of who you really are and who Jesus made you to be. We need each other speaking regularly into our lives. Okay, but here's the deal. The moment I say that, there are some of you that start to get really, really nervous. And the reason we get nervous is because because we've been around people who tell the truth, who tell it like it is. 
People who have told the truth in ways that have really, really hurt us. Right? People who, you know, wield the truth like a weapon. A weapon of arrogance, you know, to just berate people. The way they use the truth to make themselves feel superior and in the process to make you feel inferior. Uh, you know, so you, you think about that and you, and you think to yourself, this is exactly why I opt for isolation and for fantasy. People like that is why I spend the truth and why I deflect and hide. Because if I'm really transparent, those people would circle like vulture, vultures around me. Truth like that doesn't build up. It's deadly to us, right? And we're trying to survive. And you know what? For many people, that's exactly why they left the church. This place seemed like it should be a place that's safe. Because I read my Bible and the people who seem to feel the most safe around Jesus were like prostitutes and thieves and tax collectors and drunkards. So it seems like in the church, it would be safe to be broken. But I don't feel like that. Because in the name of truth, people move in for the kill in that place. And they pour salt into wounds that needed healing. We do not want to be that kind of church. You don't want to be in that kind of church. And we need one another to help create a culture that is much different from that. Because listen to me, I know many of you, and many of you know me. There ain't one of us who was saved because we were mature. There's not one of us who's saved because we've got it all together. I, I got some stuff on you and you got some stuff on me. We are broken, messed up people. The only people in here who are saved have been saved by grace. And that needs to become the culture of this place. Listen, Paul says the key to this community isn't just speaking the truth, but speaking it in love. See, you don't just need the truth. It's not enough for you. You need truth and love. Your hunger and mind is for reality, but not just bare reality. That will eat us alive. We need reality that is armed to the teeth in love and grace. A community where truth is spoken for the benefit of others, to build up others up and not to crush others or to make yourself feel superior. A community where truth breathes grace like oxygen. Not truth that is used to bolster shaky egos. To love without truth is, is not to love at all, is it? I mean, what kind of love would that be? I love you, but I don't really want to know you. <laughs> That's not really love, right? But, but also to speak the truth without love is not to speak the truth at all. Warren Wearsby once said, truth without love is brutality. And love without truth is hypocrisy. And I love that quote. We need them together. Later on, reflect on that quote on the front of your bulletin by Blaise Pascal. He's really saying something like this. 
There are some of you whose natural temperament is kind, easygoing, and you don't want to rock the boat. You are actually naturally kind of good at love, but it's hypocritical love because, wait for it, you're also naturally a coward. Others of you are really good at confrontation. (laughs) Bring it on. I'll call it like it is. Spades a spade. You're naturally kind of good. Your temperament is good at truth, right? But it is brutality because, wait for it, you're also naturally an arrogant jerk. (laughs) You know, Pascal is saying great character, supernatural character. Character, listen, we're coming full circle here. Character that is formed by the life of God in the soul of man. Character like that is not about temperament. But, but what dynamic relational life, the, the dynamic relational life of God can produce in someone. Where both extremities, right, defying everything natural, they meet in one person. Ferocious love on the one hand and ferocious truth join and meet in one person. And guess what? You can and I can become that kind of person today. You can start moving towards one another to build them up by speaking the truth in love. Speak the truth to one another in a way that never threatens, but that is always sweet and welcome because it comes through humility and love and grace. How how do you become that kind of person today? Reaching out and touching both extremities at the same time. Metaphorically, by faith, look at the cross. There the Son of God hung upon that tree. There He endured God's wrath for all your sins and mine. Big sins and little sins. The sins of yesterday, the sins of today, and the sins of tomorrow. He bore them all. What was the cross really? It was a meeting place. It was the meeting place for love and truth. Their love and truth kissed. There they embraced one another. There God revealed the truth about us, right? This is what we deserved to be forsaken, to be crushed. But listen, if you look at the cross and see it as a meeting place, you know that it's a truth we can swallow. It's a truth we can face because there at the cross, God himself was saying, I see the truth of you and I love you through and through that I will climb the cross and I will suffer and die in your place. Listen, when that reality comes home to you and it warms your heart and it's not just true in your mind, but it's true in your experience and in your heart, can you feel superior to anyone? Of course not. Look at what you deserved. But are you afraid of anyone either? You shouldn't be. Because the God of the universe, the creator of everything, he loved you like this. Right? And guess what? If this is the reality that you are regularly warming your heart with, we'll start talking differently with one another and to one another. And we'll start serving one another by speaking the truth in love 
and by using our gifts for others and not ourselves. And that's how you and I are going to grow up. That's how you and I are going to mature and live in a manner worthy of our calling and become who we were born to be in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We need your word because it is truth. It is, it is pure truth, perfect truth. But it is truth that is spoken to us in love. It is truth that reveals to us who we really are. We are often people who are totally curved in on ourselves, totally self-centered. We need you to come and break through with your love. Set us free that we might serve one another with our gifts. Set us free in Jesus that we might speak the truth in love to one another in order that we would grow up. Father, I pray that you would help us even this week to make progress. Change us, transform us, certainly for our good, we need it, but also for your glory in this place and throughout the world. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.